Hello and welcome back to the Energy Flux podcast. I'm your host, Seb Kennedy, founding editor of the Energy Flux newsletter, which you can subscribe to over at www.energyflux.news. Now, it's my great pleasure this week to be joined by Clark Williams-Derry from the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, the IEEFA. Uh, now, for those not familiar, the IEFA is a non-profit that examines issues related to energy markets, trends and policies. Its stated mission is to accelerate the transition to a diverse, sustainable and profitable energy economy. Uh, I've been monitoring the IEFA's work for some time, and uh, it's very interesting. They do lots of bespoke economic analysis on really hot energy transition topics, such as coal plant retirements, retrofitting of carbon capture, the financial health of the oil majors, and uh, the economics of liquefied natural gas projects, uh, which is what we're here to talk about today. Um, Clark Williams-Derry is the IEFA's energy finance analyst, and uh, prior to joining the Institute, he served for 18 years as Director of Energy Finance and Research for the Sightline Institute, which is a multi-issue sustainability think tank based in Seattle, where his research focused on US and global energy markets. Clark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Seb. Great. Um, Clark, so uh, yeah, the reason I, I got you on because you've, uh, you've been writing a lot recently. In fact, your most recent paper was about spare contractual capacity at US LNG projects and the ability of those to, um, to, to send extra volumes of the, of the fuel to, to Europe at this, this time of, uh, of great crisis. Um, but before we get on to that, I thought we could kind of talk a little bit more broadly about the, the panorama that we see in the gas market um, and the, the, the role that American LNG is fulfilling currently and the aspirations that are, that are held for it before we then kind of dig into the nuts and bolts of, you know, the, the, the ability of, of projects to, to, to live up to those, those aspirations. Um, and uh, I think uh, uh, some of our listeners and certainly if, uh, regular readers of Energy Flux will probably be aware of um, the, the, just the, the, the sheer need to, to get more gas into Europe. Perhaps right. not right Definitely. now because um, the storage levels have, have recovered, thanks in part to an influx of LNG coming in because we've seen these enormous runaway energy, uh, wartime premiums added to the, 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 the traded price of gas on gas hubs. Um, in continental Europe, which has drawn LNG away from Asia and uh, actually refilled gas stocks. Um, but of course, um, you know, we've seen just in the last few days, of course, Gazprom has actually stopped physical flows of natural gas into Poland and into Bulgaria. That's right. That's uh, right. Two countries which have refused to, uh, to abide by the new edict to, um, to, to deposit their funds into a uh, a, a ruble, an account denominated in rubles to pay for Gazprom's right. gas. Right. Um, and so there's, this, there's, there's a great fear, isn't there, that, um, that there could be greater physical shortages of gas in Europe um, and the LNG will be the natural fallback for, for Europe to, uh, to fill in the gaps, um, not necessarily over the summer, but certainly come next winter. Right, um, right. So maybe you can just kind of take it from there. Well, yeah, so, so there's a lot of places to start the story. But let's start with uh, the most recent moves to, uh, to cut off gas flows to Poland and Bulgaria. Um, I mean, from, I mean, I'll say this. I am a, a relative newcomer to European gas analysis. I come from this from a background of US LNG. 
rather than sort of uh, sort of the the European gas system in particular, which is obviously dominated not by LNG but by pipeline gas, particularly from Russia. Um, but uh, you know, the let, let's start with with this one. So so my sense of what was what was going on there um, was that this was you know, essentially you know one. A step back for Putin in the sense that, you know, Putin was trying to apply some pressure uh, to Poland and Bulgaria to get them to pay in rubles. And Poland and Bulgaria didn't buckle. They they decided they were not going to they, they're in a position, I think, uh, where they feel at least comfortable, if not comfortable, at least willing to put up with the curtailment of gas shipments in order to not support Russia. But what this move, you know, we saw was that, you know, Germany, Austria, Hungary, handful of other countries are willing or are at least signaling that they're willing to pay in rubles uh, or if not in rubles, they'll, they'll sort of get around, the, uh, get around it by depositing money into uh, a Gazprom bank in, in Switzerland. So in a way, what we see is, you know, in the big picture, Putin is still able and Russia is still able to use gas as an energy weapon. Uh, not just to sort of frighten Russia, not just to sort of to uh, sorry frighten Germany, not just to um, uh, sort of threaten their economy, but also to widen the cracks within the European Union, uh, which is interesting. I mean, so what we what we see essentially, like one of the things I wrote last you know earlier this year, right before the Russian uh, the Ukraine invasion, was that you know as long as Europe relies on gas, it is going to be vulnerable to manipulations like this from Russia. That 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 essentially it's it's this uh, this long term reliance, uh, particularly on Russian gas, that creates all sorts of opportunities and openings for Russia to uh, to create divisions within Europe to uh, to threaten Germany's economy. Uh, to me, that suggests that the answer here is as fast as you can. Uh, like in the short term, this is isn't possible. But as fast as you can, uh, move Russia. Sorry, move move Europe away from gas entirely. Um, it's certainly enough to 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 um, uh, to weaken Russia's stranglehold over over uh, European energy policy and European economic policy. Um, one thing that was interesting to me, looking at the European gas system, is you know the the fact that that Europe has been talking. The EU has been talking for, you know, well over a decade about diversifying its gas supplies, diversifying gas away from uh, away from Russia, and this. Uh, no, sorry, I guess diversify its gas supplies in order to, to improve energy security. Um, and there's a talk of sort of diversifying away from Russia, but the reality is that over time, uh, you know, Europe became more and more dependent on Russia, despite all this this rhetoric about sort of. You know, freeing itself from the influence of Russia or securing its gas supplies. What it was doing is essentially building more pipelines. Uh, there's this this idea that that uh, building more pipelines was the way to create a secure gas system. So th- this is uh, actually sort of you know uh, encapsulated in this rule called the N minus one rule. The N minus one rule is basically says that a um, a country's gas supply is secure if it can lose its largest 
uh, supplier of gas or the largest source of gas. So you have, if their biggest pipeline goes offline, for example, and the, the system can still survive, then, then that is a sort of a sign of security, of energy security. But the problem is that this left the entire continent increasingly you know, building more and more pipelines to get Russian gas into Europe. Um, and the result was not energy security. It was the opposite. It was like, it's sort of something that left Europe in many ways more vulnerable uh, because Russian, uh, you know, Russia, you know, was shipping more and more gas to Europe. Yes, there were more pipelines, more routes to get it there, but it still left the continent dependent on a single supplier uh, that was, you know, could be for political reasons, could be you know motivated to do do Europe harm. So, um, yeah, so the, my. Uh, it's interesting to see this this equation in in Europe between more pipelines and energy security when it turns out that that was the exact recipe f- to create more dependence and more vulnerability. Okay. Um, the, the, those pipelines you've described, one of them is the Southern Gas Corridor. So that brings gas from Azerbaijan sure. into Europe through of um, Turkey and Greece. Um, so, so I think there are perhaps it's not entirely Russian gas, isn't it? And, and I think no, that Bulgaria no. will be turning to Azerbaijan to um, to replace some of the lost Russian volumes later this year when a new pipeline comes on stream. That's right, and the same thing is true for for uh, for Norwegian gas. I mean, there's been some additional pipelines uh, there as well. So it's not entirely there. But if, when you look at the numbers, uh, what you what I you know I, I actually t- look, took a look at them. Uh, earlier this uh, this year, and it looked to me as though Russian imports grew from about about 20, 22% of supply in 2010 for, for Europe, up to about a third of total supply for Europe in 2020. So over a decade, you know, as you're building new pipelines, one of the problems, of course, is that, that Europe's domestic gas production was falling. So even as they were bringing more gas from Azerbaijan, even though they're bringing more gas into the EU from Norway, um, that the, the dependence, the overall system's dependence on Russian gas was actually on the rise, which is interesting. You know, you, like, you, like I'm not saying that like new pipelines are always necessarily a, like a, a wave for energy insecurity, but just the way it was done here left the continent more vulnerable, I'd say, to, to Russian manipulation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that that's that, and that tends to get overlooked a lot in the, in the gas debate in Europe. Is um, is this? kind of secular decline in domestic gas production which has fallen so quickly that it can't be replaced quickly enough and exactly. like you say the fallback is to is to go for the cheapest most abundant supply which of course is it's, russia it, which is it's going to be there. russia yeah i mean like like in this case it's you know it's, it's prices that are directing traffic really um and that's something that we're seeing quite a bit in the, in the lng world as well where it's uh you know that, that you know there's a lot of talk about sort of backfilling Russian gas and sort of political agreements to do that, you know, backfilling it with with U.S. LNG. But a lot of the time, you know, over the past, you know, certainly since last fall, it's really been prices that have been doing the work of redirecting gas to Europe rather than um, rather than any sort of you know specific political dictates or mandates or agreements. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and that that war premium, that's that's what I was referring to in in my opening spiel is right, exactly. the, the price on on TTF, the total transfer facility. We've seen it. Um, you know, spending very long periods now in, in triple digits in terms of dollars per per mm. Uh, sorry, yeah, when, when, hour? 
because it's uh, giga one hour, yeah, yeah, yeah giga one hour. <laughs> like, like what this one thing of dealing with the gas world is that all the units are different all over the world. Is you know billion cubic meters and million metric tons and billion cubic feet and and gigawatt hours. It's it's hard to sort of keep track of it all, but yeah. Um, no, you're right, and, and uh, I, I nearly made the the blooper there by saying triple digit dollars per MBTU. But who knows? We might end up there because if, <laughs> if, if if Russia really does stop supplying gas down the Nord Stream one pipeline, then right. all bets are off, right? That's right. I mean, so so far, like you know, Nord Stream has been the one pipeline that has really seen no, you know, there's been no no uh, no decrease in flows. Um, Yamal's been uh, has been up and down. I think currently it's down. Pipeline flows through Ukraine have been down, but Nord Stream has been holding strong. Um, you know, for all the talk of getting off of Russian gas, I mean, Nord Stream is, in a, is evidence that that's, uh, that's sort of, you know, it's more talk than action at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll see. Um, I think yes, the ruble yes, question is, is an unanswered one at this stage, although I, I yeah. kind of suspect that Germany will play ball now it seems it sounds like it is i mean of course it's they're they're talking about banning uh russian oil imports which are easy to replace i mean oil is a little bit more fungible just because it's sort of you know it it is possible to get get you know supplies of oil from elsewhere um gas is a little bit harder gas is a harder nut to crack for them it is it is um, so, so, so let's let's talk about the role that, that um, American LNG can play here, because um, when we saw, uh, and of course, I, I, we should actually clarify that you know the, the very expensive gas that we've seen on European hubs that predates Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and we saw the prices building up pretty stratospherically um, in the third quarter of 2021, and exactly. um, reach really insane proportions over. Christmas and the New Year, mm-hmm. um, but of course um, the price that um, the, the buyers in Asia, in in China and Japan, were willing to pay for LNG was just that much that much more, which meant there was more the better netbacks, better profitability in sending right. the cargoes east over to to, to Oriental premium markets. Um, but of course, that flipped that that um, that spread flipped back, and um, we saw, the, and the press went a bit crazy about this armada of U.S. LNG vessels heading to Europe to uh, <laughs> right. to save the Europeans right, from right, this right. gas shortage. Um, yeah. So, so it has a role, doesn't it? I mean, like American energy at a price can come and bail you out if you're in problems. Yeah, uh, and that's you know one of the things that's sort of fairly unique about the U.S. LNG industry. Um, is that the, there's a tremendous amount of destination flexibility built in the con- into the contracts. Um, so, you know, for example, uh, you know, like a, a company like Shell or BP or Total can buy, commit to buying U.S. LNG and then ship it wherever it wants in the world. Uh, if there's no, you know, in many, you know, in other parts of the, of the world earlier um, in the sort of the global build out of the LNG sector, uh, there's a, it was much more common to see point-to-point contracts, you know, one physical, uh, you know, LNG liquefaction plant connected with, you know, by contract with one physical or one set of physical uh, import terminals. Uh, but right now, the, the watchword of the day, or at least in the U.S. In, in industry, is largely been destination flexibility. So, you know, a tremendous amount of U.S. LNG is sold to what are called portfolio players like Shell or BP, sort of big multinational 
traders who are, you know, they've got a portfolio of, of suppliers, they've got a portfolio of customers, and they sort of match cargo, you know, cargo from a seller to a buyer. Um, and they are, they just sort of act as middlemen uh, and, you know, take a, you know, use, use opportunities for price arbitrage to make their money. But, um, you know, the, the, you know, so there's quite a bit of, of U.S. LNG that goes by, um, you know, to these portfolio players, but there's still a lot of LNG that is, um, reserved by the liquefaction companies, the, the plants in the U.S. for spot sales. Uh, you know, part of their business strategy was, you know, okay, let's lock in our contracts. You know, eighty percent of our volumes will be under under long term contracts, where you get you know fixed fees, and then we'll be able to play the spot markets with the remaining twenty percent. And so, between the, the the contracts with you know destination flexibility and the contracts that are you know, basically dedicated to European buyers and the contract and the, the extra volumes that can be sold on the spot market, a tremendous amount of gas from the U.S. is, is you know, able to go where, you know, essentially wherever it needs to, and in particular into Europe. Um, and so that's what we've seen. Like it, uh, in March, we saw an announcement by the White House and EU leaders that uh, they wanted to start shipping 15 uh, I believe it's 15 billion cubic meters of additional mm-hmm. uh, additional U.S. LNG to Europe this year. And when I looked at the numbers, what I saw was, well, that was a pretty weak target because what you know, if if you know the second quarter shapes up like the, the first quarter did, you know, the U.S. could blow through that target by July or August. You know, the 15 billion cubic meters of additional LNG. That is, you know, by July or August, you know, so much of the U.S. volumes will be going to Europe that they may get through all of the 2021 volumes plus 15 uh, BCM additional, uh, you know, by, you know, well before, you know, before you hit the end of the summer. And if you go out towards the end of the year, you could actually get close to the politically political target of 50 billion cubic meters, which was sort of the longer term target, you know, like sort of aspirational target that maybe someday the U.S. could get to 50. Well, that actually could, you know, get pretty close to that this year alone. Again, depending on how prices play out and how volumes, uh, whether volumes continue to go from uh, from uh, from the U.S. to to Europe. One other little wrinkle is that there is, um, you know, some of the the uh, LNG that is essentially for sale or, or contracted to Japanese or Chinese buyers right now can be directed to redirected to Europe, and and you know we're seeing some signs that that um, that Asian buyers are taking their LNG and shipping it to Europe, you know, and you know making a profit that way because they you know they they buy their LNG at, at sort of U.S. prices. For, for natural gas and ship it to Europe at a higher price. And that's, that's a winds up, you know, there's, there may, may actually be some redirection of cargoes from, from Asia to Europe as well. Yeah. But what, what I find really fascinating about that particular phenomenon of the Asian buyers, you know, t- lifting their, their volumes from like the Cove Point plant or, right. or one of the other Gulf Coast plants was, was, um, the, 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 all the politics that came along with it because we had, um, uh, European Commission officials reaching out to um, to, to, to countries like Japan yes. um, and saying, "Look, do you, can you can you spare us some some LNG?" And of course, those decisions that were made to send US LNG that was you know being lifted by an Asian buyer to Europe 
they were commercial decisions. They were being determined by prices. But, of course, the politicians like to point at it and say, aha, you see... We- <laughs> I, I was successful. Yes. <laughs> Look yes. what we've achieved. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you never know, you know how, whether a little bit of pressure from a politician might open up a little bit more sales to Europe. But for the most part, what we're seeing is you make a better profit selling to Europe when prices are high. So why would you sell your you know, LNG to Asia? Why wouldn't you just you know, sell it to Europe and, and pocket, the money, pocket the difference? I mean, the, 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 the problem for the global LNG market is we have players like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, sort of the wealthy Asian countries with essentially no other source of gas. I mean, they've, they have significant you know, industrial and, uh, and commercial gas needs uh, and you know, power, needs for power. And they, uh, they don't have any pipeline sources of gas. They're relying on LNG. Um, and so you have wealthy Asian nations now competing against uh, wealthy European nations for the same limited pot of LNG globally. And that's one of the things that I think people... Um, you know, who are talking about sort of the, the big potential for the, the globe to supply or the U.S. to supply Europe with more LNG. It takes a long time to get an LNG project up and, up and running. I mean, we're talking three years at the very minimum, more like five in, in most cases. So, you know, if you build a new plant now, uh, you have to wait five years for that capacity to come online or maybe you know, three if you rush. Um, you know, if it's sort of like you put it on sort of, you know, an emergency or sort of, you know, if you fast track it. Um, but the, in the meantime, you'll have wealthy European nations and wealthy Asian nations all competing for the same limited pot of LNG that's available in the world. And what's happening, mm-hmm. what we're seeing now is that developing nations uh, in South America or in Southeast Asia or South Asia, are those are the countries that are getting squeezed out of the LNG market. And that is actually an interesting development for uh, for long-term supply and so long-term demand, uh, because a lot of new projects in the U.S. and elsewhere were essentially counting on global demand rising, and a lot of that global demand—you know—I've seen estimates of up to seventy percent—was supposed to come from South Asia and Southeast Asia, these sort of developing economies: Vietnam, uh, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, mm-hmm. um, even Thailand. Uh, and these are the countries that, you know, that was where the market was going. I mean, because Europe's demand was stable, uh, you know, and maybe declining. Uh, you know, people thought that, that even the wealthy Asian nations, you know, Japan, Korea, might be, you know, their, their demand was not going to be growing the same way. And it might actually shrink a little bit over time. Uh, but so the real growth in the market was going to be happening in Southeast Asia. But now those, are the, those growth markets are actually shrinking because they can't compete for you know, they can't compete on price against against Germany, or they can't compete compete on price when you know when you, when LNG prices were six dollars per mmbtu, it looked like a pretty good deal. When they're thirty or forty, I mean, they're just priced out of the market. Uh, and so all this sort of demand growth, the long term demand growth that was you know was slated for to happen in Southeast Asia, that just may not materialize. I mean, you know, I've seen. Quotes saying, actually, this is from from uh, somebody in the Balkans. Essentially, gas is developing a reputation as unreliable. It's not, you know, something can be, uh, you know, is available reliably at an affordable price. 
Uh, and that is maybe changing the conversation about how demand is going to evolve in, uh, around the world. I mean, we talk about all these high prices simulating supply, and that may happen, but they're also suppressing demand and get, forcing you know, developing nations to give a real rethink, I think, about their, the role of LNG in their national energy policies. I mean, if you know, you're counting on LNG shipments and you suddenly find, you know, in the case of Pakistan, you know, you know, Gunvor, one of these big international LNG traders, just cut off Pakistan, basically said, we're not going to deliver your cargoes from April through July. I'm sorry, you're not getting them. It's not, it's not yours. We're going to sell it to Europe. Um, and so they had been counting on that supply to sort of to you know for for the country's energy needs. They can't get it now, and they can't compete on the markets. Um, so it's been a real tough time for, if you're a developing economy, uh, a, a, you know, a buyer in in Bangladesh, Pakistan. Uh, this has been a very difficult time to secure energy supplies you know, by going into the LNG markets. Yeah, and, and again, that's another thing that I think doesn't get discussed very much um, when. The European Commission puts out, you know, extremely ambitious proposals for getting off Russian gas in an expedited fashion. The, the the fact that they're drawing molecules out of out of a you know a limited global market, which is already quite tight, and what quite the tight, kind of social yes. implications are for for you know you know hitting that that kind of that that nets supply demand balance you know, tightening it even further then you know what's going to happen in in countries that, that really really need it yeah um, yeah yeah and you look at you know let's say just spot sales i mean spot sales i mean in the first third of um of the year uh from january through april we've seen at least a one-third decline in in sales of spot lng that's you know one you know one-off cargoes or short-term cargoes uh into developing asia uh, that includes includes China, uh, but so just in the in you know as you, as you say as the markets have gotten tighter, it's the uh, it's the developing nations that have gotten squeezed out. Yeah, okay. Um, so um, do you think we're going to 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 see this uh, much heralded second wave of U.S. LNG liquefaction plants built because that's that was the initial response that when when Europe said okay we, we we're going to ditch Russian gas we're going to um, you know diversify buy as much LNG as we can uh, we're going to you know hopefully buy more American LNG and then that would un underwrite the the construction of uh, a, a new generation of infrastructure along the Gulf Coast of the U.S. that would be liquefying shale gas and, and sending it to to Europe. Um, is, is there any chance of that actually happening? We haven't even seen a single long-term purchase contract signed between an American LNG project and a European buyer since the war, but yet we have seen many signed with, with the Chinese. So right, right. how do you see That's that exactly playing right. out? No, it's, um, so it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic right now. All eyes are on, are on Europe. I mean, everybody's paying attention to what the, the European dynamic um, and you know, the supply tightness we're seeing in Europe right now. Uh, but commercially, commercially the, the market is not really paying as much attention to European demand as to what's happening in Asia. So, you know, the, the, the problem with sort of relying on Europe as a long-term customer is that at the same time they, Europe is, um, is you know, needs 
to backfill Russian gas supplies, it's also working pretty hard to reduce its consumption of gas. I mean, ramping up renewables, ramping up efficiency and conservation efforts. Uh, also getting new supplies from Azerbaijan or from Norway, uh, maybe from Algeria if possible. Uh, so, you know, although there's some obviously some, some hiccups happening in, in uh, you know, in, in the Algerian market as well. But the, you know, the, the, the long-term prospects for demand growth for LNG in, in Europe are pretty limited. Um, you know, it, it, you never know what's going to, never know what's going to happen, but you know, what people are looking at, you know, you know, what's going to happen to demand in 10 years or 15 years, uh, the, Europe does not seem to be the center of new demand. Um, and that is actually pretty important to, uh, you know, for these, you know, to build a, an LNG terminal in the U.S., at least historically, they were really built on the backs of not a short-term contract, but a 20-year commitment from a creditworthy buyer. You know, so it's it's a you know it's a big company with a a lot of buying power, like you know, like a Shell or a BP or maybe a national utility. Um, you know, in uh, in Europe or in Asia. You know, Mitsui or, or, uh, or trading houses as well. So, but they're twenty-year commitments, and they lock people into you know a, a fixed liquefaction fee, and that's what makes these projects bankable. You have a counterparty that is willing to pay money year after year, regardless of whether they use the capacity. Like that was what was happening during COVID. Uh, that you know a lot of these brand new LNG facilities in the U.S. were simply offline, but the money kept flowing. From the, you know, essentially from the buyers who weren't taking the LNG shipments uh, into the companies, and the companies could use that to service their debt. Uh, so, you know, you really need a 20-year contract, but that's just not a good fit for Europe, where it is trying to move away from gas. And also, I mean, frankly, I think a lot of Europeans are thinking, okay, who knows what's going to happen? Right now, we're in the middle of a crisis, but are we going to be in a in a crisis in five years? Uh, when you know, when these new LNG facilities in the U.S. come online, I mean, maybe the crisis will continue, but you never know what's going to happen. And you know, like it's possible that that you know we'll be looking at all this in the rearview mirror in a year or two. Uh, it'll be a, a, one of the, the the big market disruption of of 2022, but you know it's not something that that is immediate immediately relevant anymore. Now I, I hope that's the case, but I don't know it's going to be the case. But um, that kind of thinking, this long-term trajectory that's needed to finance U.S. LNG projects and make sure that the bankers are comfortable and they've got long-term commitments and counterparties that can pay, um, that isn't, isn't a good fit for Europe. Now, on the other hand, what we are seeing is that Asian buyers, particularly Chinese buyers, are desperate to get out of the spot market. Right now, you know, if you want to buy LNG in Asia, you're paying, you know, you might be paying $30 per MMBTU. Uh, during COVID, you're paying two. Um, and if you have an, a long-term contract with a U.S. company, or if you have an oil-linked contract even, you're going to be paying a lot less than what you're paying on the spot market for LNG. And so the, the thought is that the spot market for LNG is going to be you know, ugly for the next few years and maybe for a long time. So a lot of the... the uh, the Asian buyers who are hoping for cheap cargoes on the spot market are now willing to sign long-term co commitments with U.S. Uh, U.S. Con uh, U.S. LNG facilities. So, if the the build-out of U.S. LNG facilities continues, if we see new projects, it's, they're probably going to be built on the back of new 
contracts with China, or maybe with also with some uh, some portfolio players. But we've already seen this. We've seen uh, we've seen uh, ENN, which is a, a Chinese buyer, uh, with a pretty sizable purchase at a new facility called Lake Charles LNG. It's not under construction yet, but it's the first major contract. Uh, Rio Rio Grande LNG has a um, it's a new another project under development. Essentially, the Chinese buyers who have stepped in and started signing these long-term contracts with U.S. facilities, and so if we're going to see, you know, some of these projects that have been, yeah, you know, they've basically been on life support for a while. Um, you know, they were. There's been a big lag. A lot of these pr- projects have been permitted, and they're just sitting on the shelf, waiting to move, and has been doing that for, you know, for years now, waiting for for buyers to show up. Um, but the buyers who are showing up right now are Chinese. I mean, like, really, it's like uh, in, in some ways it's sort of interesting. The um, you know the the, the you, Ukraine gas crisis has been sort of a defibrillator, you know, sort of <laughs> for the U.S. gas industry. That was you know, it seemed like it was on its deathbed, or at least it was like on a on a sickbed. But it's sort of come back to life. But the but the the power the the shock for that defibril- defibrillator is coming from China, not from Europe, which is where you'd expect. It's fascinating the way you describe it. And um, I, I wonder if I really should have titled the show, What Can Europe Do For American LNG? Because <laughs> <laughs> that well, seems it, to be the real question here, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. So it's, it, or like, really, it's like, you know, in, in a way, frankly, it's what, what, what is Russia doing for the US LNG industry? Right, you know, right. It's, yeah. it's, you know, it's Russia who created the gas crisis in Europe. I mean, obviously, it's like Europe had a role because they sort of let themselves get addicted. Um, you know, like I sort of just put it, put it out there kind of plainly. Like it's, it's, you know, it's, you know, cheap energy, you know, low cost uh, natural gas is a, is a powerful drug. And so, you know, and, and, and Russia was supplying. So, you know, you know, and of course, you know, when you're, when you're an addict, you know, when the supply starts to go away, you start doing some desperate things. Uh, you know, and you know, like this is not to sort of like point the finger at Europe. It's just like that's that's how energy is. I mean, cheap energy just it, it just you know it's certainly the case in the United States where, you know, the gas prices go up to levels that are common, in uh, have been common in in Europe for a long time, and everybody here is 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 complaining about high prices. You know, and, and because they've they've built their lives around cheap energy, um, and you know that it's um, it comes as a shock when the cheap energy goes away. Um, and that's what we're in, in right now. So, you know, you know, if I, I will I'll like to put my, you were exactly right earlier in the show when you said that it was really sort of, you know, last fall when we started seeing these price spikes. And it was because Russia was just shortchanging Europe. It was, you know, by, by you know, by late autumn, uh, you know, it was, be, it was actually beginning to, Gazprom was empty, beginning to empty storage owned by Gazprom within Europe. And it, and it was just a, essentially a manufactured crisis to remind Europe of how dependent they are on on Russian gas. And the the end result, of course, is that Russia is actually making more money than now than it did before the invasion, because prices are so high. It's sort of this this cruel irony is that even as some volumes have slipped, uh, you know, the the Russian oil and gas industry is raking in cash. Um, and it's uh, it's another reminder that you know when you have a you know, when you have a, a global energy system that's that's essentially 
you know, tied to the whims of, you know, of, of a politician who may not have, you know, a, you know, U.S. or European consumers at, at, yeah, in their in uh, or their interests at heart, uh, that it, you can create some real shockwaves through not just the energy economy but for the entire economy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, what started as a kind of manufactured gas crisis has spilled over into lots of other fields. Like you say, we've seen um, obviously gas to coal switching in the power sector. So we right. saw. Um, a rally in coal prices and um, diesel fire generation in those markets which have a lot of decentralized diesel generation they uh, they've switched onto those um, to, uh, to to yes. substitute very expensive gas so right. this rapidly became a kind of global energy crisis that's right that's right and you know we've seen you know demand for diesel is, is clearly something different is happening right now uh, than has happened in the past we've seen in the u.s what's called the crack spread that's the uh the 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 difference in what you know a, a refiner pays for the raw material for the fuel you know the, the crude oil or whatever they're refining uh and the cost of diesel the crack spread is now why does it's ever been uh for diesel that is you know it looks yeah. like there's a real demand around the world for diesel fuel probably related to the surge you know because people are turning away from you know you know they can't afford gas so they're turning to diesel and now the price of diesel is soaring so uh and all these things all these things are interconnected yeah and if you follow that through of course diesel is a um the kind of staple energy source for the agriculture sector so that has an impact on food prices um, in tandem with, of course, natural gas being a major economic input for, or a feedstock, I should say, for um, for fertilizer production. That's right. You know, so it's, you have this enormous food question. Absolutely, and that's you know, it's another thing that this, um, you know, you know, the, the the fact that U.S. sorry, the fact that European and, and Asian buyers are now bidding up the cost of of, of LNG around the world. That's you know, feeding back into. You know, domestic gas prices, certainly in the U.S. I mean, U.S. Um, gas prices are at, you know, they're, they're at a, like a, a multi-year high. I think it's more than a decade since we've seen gas prices sustained at the levels we've seen them over the past past uh, few months. Uh, and that has huge impacts for the ag- agricultural sector because the U.S. produces a lot of its own fertilizer, ships some fertilizer overseas, um, but more generally places that where you know, essentially LNG is competing for the same vet gas feedstock as fertilizer. I mean, it's, you know, it winds up being food prices and farmers to take the hit. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you consider this panorama, you think, well, the more US LNG we can get into the market, the better, right? Because we have this structural shortage and people are going to really start hurting soon, already are in lots yeah, of places, right. but that's going to get, get worse. Um so, so there is a kind of almost a moral imperative, perhaps, to uh, to, to bring more volumes of, of gas from a, from a stable, friendly democracy into a market that could really, really benefit from them. Yeah, I mean, so I, 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 I hear that. The, um, the thing, I mean, <laughs> remember, it's, it's the, the decisions are not right now being made by politicians. The decisions, at least in the U.S. system, are mostly being made by private interests. And again, you know, you're, you're, you talk about it being sort of like you know, gas supplies from a, a friendly, stable democracy. That's, that's true, right? Uh, although, I mean, it's not 
clear as clear to me as it used to be that the U.S. is a stable democracy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But but the but regardless, I mean, we're not actually. This is not an agreement between governments. This is an agreement between you know essentially private companies. Uh, it's not. This is not sort of a system that's being you know sort of a handshake between you know the White House and EU leaders. This is actually being driven you know in the boardrooms for the most part. Of, of you know international oil and gas conglomerates, who you know frankly they are they're benefiting right now from the geopolitical turmoil. I mean, it's, it is not necessarily in the interest of a of an oil and gas company to see stable low prices for their fuels. I mean, like the, one of the big pieces of research that I've done for IEF over the past few years is tracking how much the fossil fuel industry was losing. I mean, we've seen this huge fracking boom in the U.S. You know, we've you know, went from being kind of an also ran in the in the uh, in in global oil production to being the number one producer. But in the process of doing that, you know, the U.S. Oil and gas industry was consistently losing money. It was spending more on drilling for oil and gas than it can get by selling oil and gas in the markets. Uh, and so, you know, the, the result has been that oil and gas producers now, in the, after COVID, they're holding back on production because they actually don't want to flood markets. They want to keep, you know, they're, they're perfectly happy spending less on drilling and getting more for their oil and gas that they do produce. Um, and that's been a, like a major dynamic here in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. politicians have gotten a lot of flack for high high energy prices, but it's really been the boardrooms, the the executives of these companies, and the investors that that uh, that they uh, that they listen to, who have been calling for production restraint. So, I mean, I just I worry a little bit about you know sort of talking about you know you know. A partnership between stable democracies when it's really a partnership between, you know, it's, it's corporations that are that are making their decisions in their own best interests, not necessarily in the best interests of uh, of the citizens of the Europe or of, of the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hear that totally. Um, but I suppose the, the flip side of the argument, I, I don't, don't want to dwell too much on this point, but yeah, just sure. um, it's, it's like, you know, when you, when you buy gas from Qatar, then you think, well, you know, <laughs> how many... How many human rights abuses went into exactly. fabricating the steel that, 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 that supports the structures that liquefy that gas? We just don't know. Yeah. So there's that angle of it too. Same. You, know, you buy oil from Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, the, like is that? I mean, there's human human rights issues in Saudi Arabia as well. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. So I mean, to me, I mean, the, the from from my perspective, the moral imperative is less about let's get more gas into the market, right? Although that may be sort of appropriate in the short term. I mean, there may be ways of doing that without sort of locking yourself into a long-term commitment. But, uh, and, you know, certainly we've seen that the U.S. market has enough flexibility to provide a tremendous amount of LNG to Europe in the short term. Um, you know, that there's so much flexibility that in, in destinations that, you know, p- meeting the short-term political goals of supplying uh, U.S., supplying Europe with more U.S. gas, um, that's, that's going to be possible. But the longer-term need may be for the, you know, the world to use less gas, right, and, and you know, figure out ways as quickly as possible as transitioning away from this, you know, highly unstable system where we basically handed over decision-making powers to, you know, thugs in Russia or, or you know, co- corporations that don't have our best interests at heart. Uh, you know, what about, you know, turning to, you know, like, you know, an increased use of wind or solar, for example, 
that you know it's completely immune to international politicking. You know, like you know, nobody can turn off the supplies of the wind or the sun, uh, and you know those things are you know essentially that's you know if you want energy security, you use what you have locally. And in Europe, I mean, you still have you know it's not as it's not sort of a, a solar or wind powerhouse the way some parts of the world are, but there's still a, a, a strong energy security case to be made for not just continuing more of the same not you know finding new supplies of gas that may be unstable in the future but actually pro- you know producing as much energy as possible locally uh, and you know from from a climate perspective and also from in many cases from a cost perspective that points to you know an increased you know a real ramp up in wind and solar and storage yeah yeah absolutely um i, I wanted to go back to a point which you um touched on briefly and and that is the the kind of local or or you know US political backdrop for for higher natural gas prices because as um US LNG exports have risen to Europe then we've seen um there's been there's there more exposure isn't there of um of like the the, the Henry Hub wholesale gas price to global gas price spikes so we've seen Henry Hub rally from sort of the 2 3 dollar range right. to about seven dollars per MMBTU now. Yeah, um, that's right. I mean, and, it, it got um, a little higher than that, even close to closer to eight. But I think right now it's, it's hovering around seven. Yeah. Okay. So, w- w- what does that mean? Because I know there is a, a very small but active lobby group um, of energy-intensive manufacturers who want to um, stimmy or put a, a, a cap on U.S. LNG exports. But that doesn't seem to be kind of winning much um, uh, airtime at the moment. Do you think that's that's going to remain the case, or do you think there might be some actual real pushback against LNG exports if it, it, know, domestic to, prices go crazy? Yeah, right. And they, uh, like, yeah, it's hard to know. Okay, so number number one, you never know how politics is going to go. It, it's sort of we've we've seen. Yeah, this is one thing that's been very interesting to watch is that you know the, the industrial energy energy consumers in the U.S. they tend to be sort of rock ribbed conservative you know um, you know business businesses, and sort of the the, the sort of the more left leaning in the U.S. consumer advocates are all saying the same thing that that you know that the rise in U.S. LNG exports is one of the dri- main driving factors in rising gas prices in the US. You know, and we've, you know, frankly we've seen this elsewhere in the world. I mean, like in in Australia when Australia started exporting more of its gas and sort of committing to export more of its gas, they, you know, early on in eastern Australia there was, you know, that they had uh, you know, low prices the way the U.S. does, and now they, you know, they're much more likely to be paying, be paying, you know, world prices for their for gas. It's you know, once you integrate your market into the global market, suddenly, you know, the, you know, you, <laughs> a lot of the time the the idea is okay, we'll use our cheap gas and we'll sell it overseas and we'll make a lot of money. But then what turns out to happen is that your cheap gas becomes more expensive gas because there's so much demand for it. And so local consumers start paying more for their gas because they're now competing against, you know, competing in the global market. Um, and that's exactly what's happening in the U.S. I mean, when you look at, at, at the domestic supply and demand issues, I mean, you know, com- in 2021, uh, gas supplies, gas production in the U.S. was a little bit above pre-pandemic levels in 2019. So you actually saw overall an increase in the total amount of gas produced in the U.S., a small one, between 2021 versus 2019. And you also saw demand drop a little bit, you know, that, that, you know, the total amount of U.S. 
you know, like U.S. consumers' demand and you know, power plants and industries and homes and businesses, their demand for gas fell a little bit. So what you usually th- think of is, you know, when supplies go up and demand goes down, prices fall. But instead, what we saw was prices skyrocket. You know, they were more than double in 2021 by the end of 2021, where they were in 2019. And the the reason for all that was exports. I mean, like the exports of, of U.S. LNG and U.S. gas had risen to new heights. Uh, LNG exports between 2021 and end of 2019 more than doubled. So, uh, you know, what we had was a, a situation where, you know, we were exporting our gas and importing higher prices as a result. Um, and, you know, I don't know what's going to happen you know, what I'm trying to say is that sort of, you know, analytically, it's very hard to make the case that um, that LNG exports are not at the root or one of the roots of high gas prices in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And whether you uh, whether that's going to have some political effects is hard to say. I mean, the big, you know, sort of, the, you know, the energy consumers group. Uh, is one of the few that's willing to say this because, you know, if you have another trade group, you know, sort of the American, you know, like the Co- Chamber of Commerce, uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, or some of the other big business-focused uh, organizations, they have both, you know, they've got gas producers, they've got LNG companies, they've got, you know, U.S. US companies. They represent a, a huge, broad swath of American industry, uh, both the producers and the consumers. The producers love LNG exports, the consumers don't like it so much, but so that means that the you know a big national business lobby that has you know multiple uh, you know represents multiple industries is going to remain silent about this. It's only the the energy consumers, and that's you know I guess you could say like the, both the industrial side and the consumer side who are really up in arms about this. Uh, it's and it's going to be hard to sort of you know see who's going to carry the day. What I think the signals I'm hearing suggest that the the the, the political, um, I don't know, sort of the, the, the consensus view among politicians has not yet really recognized fully the effect of gas exports on U.S. gas prices. Like the consumers really are paying high prices specifically because of the increase in exports. I mean, analysts can say it over and over again, but until they have politicians who are really taking that um, you know, you know t- listening to what the analysts are saying, uh, it's hard to know whether there's going to be a, any political blowback from that. Yeah. Okay. I, I guess the, the stock response from the gas industry to um, uh, energy intensive consumers concerns is hedging, you know, hedge your exposure, manage your risk, and then this shouldn't be an issue. Oh yeah, but like you, you can only you can only now that prices are high, it's hard to hedge, right? <laughs> you know, if you can, if these companies had locked in their prices, you know, two dollars or three dollars in the past, um, yeah, I guess that's right. But it's expensive to do your hedging, and and um, you know, frankly, you know, the, you, this is a long term problem. It's really hard to hedge out for three to five years, seven years. Get your entire, you know, your entire sort of needs hedged out that far. Um, you know, when the, you know, you, hedging is a useful tool to sort of prevent against sort of unex, unex, you know, unexpected, you know, price spikes. But you, you know, if you're paying seven right now, it's really hard to figure out a way to hedge. So you're only going to pay three in a, in a couple of years. 
um, you know, it's like, yeah, hedging is a way of ma- managing managing volatility and, and upside and downside risk, but it's, it's not a great way of locking in low prices when prices are already high. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Clark, before we wrap things up, like how, how can we, um, for, for listeners who would have um, you know, tapped on the listen button and think, well, what can American energy do for Europe? Yeah. <laughs> Ray, what is it? Can we... Can we can we give them uh, some sort of coherent answer? Um, yeah, sure. That's a great question. Um, so, so in the short term, we what we're seeing is that that Europe is getting a lot more LNG from the United States, and it, it's not just a small amount. I mean, the, the 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 again with the White House and EU announcement, they put set this sort of target of we're going to get fifteen BCM to Europe. This year, an additional 15 uh, billion cubic meters of, of, of U.S. gas to Europe, uh, and from from the analysis that I've I've done and from the numbers that we've seen, it is very likely that the U.S. is going to absolutely blow through that target this year. Um, that that the 15 BCM was actually a kind of a it was it was almost like a target that was you know, set by politicians that they like maybe hoped they knew they were, they were going to blow through, and I think that's going to happen. I think that the U.S. is probably going to wind up boosting its exports of, of gas to Europe by about I'm going to say like in in the range of forty to uh, maybe a little bit above forty BCM this year. I don't know that that's going to happen because it's really going to depend on prices. Again, as I've said before, it's, it's prices. And not politics that are that are directing traffic in, in the global LNG market, but at a minimum, we've seen a huge jump in U.S. LNG shipments to Europe. Again, as I say, this is you know, really a, a market decision, a commercial decision, more than a political one. Longer term, it's harder to know what's going to happen because uh, you know, as I said before, you know, it, it takes years to get a new LNG facility once it's authorized. You know, to get it up and running. I mean, it's not just something that can be turned on overnight. There's no switch that can be flipped to create more LNG. And most of the, the, the existing facilities are running flat out as much as they can. Uh, so e- even, you know, if, if the, uh, if we, you know, greenlight a new project now, or if a new project gets greenlit, and there are plenty of projects that have all their permitting that they've got, they're just waiting for essentially financing. And the financing is, it comes on the back of, not you know again politics, but again it's it's sort of private commercial decisions about whether the contracts that underpin the, the facilities are strong enough. So you know once we see financing for these one of these projects, a final investment decision, you know it's probably going to be 2025 at the very earliest, and probably more like 26 or 27 when some of these projects are actually going to come online. And so until then. You know, you're, the, the U.S. is kind of like you know stuck with you know, until the new facilities come online. The U.S. is, is there's not much a, a whole lot more that the U.S. can do to help Europe beyond what is already uh, is already underway. Um, and so, you know, it's essentially, you know, the, the U.S. is has provided a tremendous amount of gas to Europe during in the middle of this crisis, but its ability in the short term to provide more gas is pretty tapped out. Maybe it's a long-winded way of saying that the that that the U.S. Uh, is already doing quite a bit to supply Europe with more gas because of for commercial reasons. But you know, it's it's you know to do a lot more than we're doing right now is going to would take years. 
Uh, and at that point, who knows what's going to happen in the world, whether Europe is actually going to need that LNG. Yes. And this is why we haven't really seen major commercial decisions by European buyers to support new LNG terminals in the U.S. They just haven't seen it. We've seen the uh, you know like international buyers with you know the, uh, with multiple flexible destinations, but not the European utilities that you might expect to be excited about you know new U- U.S. LNG facilities. Yeah, I, I think that sums it up brilliantly, Clark. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to to go through it. So um, so many thanks for for joining us. Of course, us. It, was a, it was a great conversation. Thank you, Seb. Brilliant. Um, uh, just a reminder to listeners, um, if you haven't done so already, just head on over to www.energyflux.news uh, where you can sign up for free email updates and uh, check out the premium subscription option too if you want to get down into all the uh, deep analysis that I do of these kinds of things and, and many other topics to do with the energy transition. And, uh, and also check out the um, IEFA's work. And uh, what's the website address for the IEFA? It's ieefa.org, ieefa.org. Yeah, you guys have a daily news shout as well, don't you? Kind of headline yes, summary, which is headline very, very summary. Easy. Yeah, and and you know we've got analysts around the world. It's it's hard for me to keep up with all the research we're we're putting out. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's highly recommended. So um, so go check them out. Thanks a lot, Clark. See you again soon. Thank you, Tim. Take care. Bye bye. Bye.